0: Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here with Authentic Biochemistry. Today is the eighth day of December, Feast of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And uh, besides that important feast day, this is also a day where I'm going to be giving you one of those um, segmented lectures that's going to be the... um, intermediary response between the first of the last video lectures on aging and then the actual last video lecture, which as soon as I get through some of these audios, I will really perform. And it will be before Christmas. This I promise. So let me get right back into what we were talking about last time so that I don't waste time um, explaining what I'm going to do and just do it, right? So, you know, we have primary senescent cells associated with the aging system. And what can happen if they are persistently activating DNA damage repair via signaling, and that can be done from a primary senescent cell that is performing as a senescent associated secretory phenotypic cell. And what that means is that that cell will be generating interleukin-1-beta and TGF-beta. Now, at the same time, <laughs> we're going to be triggering immune cells, various immune cells, to also generate cytokines. And typically, we would think about interferon gamma and TNF-alpha. So you got four different cytokines going to a secondary or bystander neonatient senescent cell. So let me tell you what happens. These primary senescent cells with a persistently activated DNA damage repair signaling from what starts off as unrepaired DNA lesions will start to produce a plethora of cytokines. And then you're going to have basically this senescence associated phenotype. Remember that's IL-1 beta and TGF beta. Now what they induce, as I told you last time, is an enzyme called NADPH oxidase. The one that's most often measured is NOx4. And it works in a paracrine manner in normal, otherwise normal neighboring cells. So the NOx4 will generate reactive oxygen. And in those so-called normal cells or secondary bystander cells, you're going to trigger then a DNA damage repair response. And its persistence will then activate a secondary senescence with a secondary SASP, all happening in vivo. Now, these cells don't have to be adjacent, okay? They can be be associated in a paracrine way. So they could be within the neighborhood. So we call them bystander senescent cells. So you've got that going on. uh, And you also have the immune cells. Typically, these are Th1 lymphocytes. And they're inducing senescence in Uh, typically in tumor cells when they're functioning by generating those two cytokines I just mentioned to you, interferon gamma and TNF alpha. So this whole system is very similar mechanistically for senescence promotion because it's mediated by a leukin-1 beta and TGF beta, inducing that NOx 4 DDR, okay? So what I'm telling you is that, in, rather than getting cell proliferation, this bystander effect will will prevent the DNA damage repair mechanism from allowing for the repair, and then what cell division, which often happens after repair. Remember, I told you it's sort of um, nonlinear in understanding. Okay that it, it, i won't say it's paradoxical because it isn't but it almost seems paradoxical certainly contrarian that when you have damaged dna once that damaged dna is repaired via the ddr response what happens is that that cell will quickly try to orchestrate cell division remember i told you it would go into the s phase right the dna synthetic phase that's because it was triggered by the dna damage repair process so, but what will happen in those senescent cells, if you get this, this NF-kappa, uh, NF-kappa B, NOX4 increase in reactive oxygen, generating DNA damage, so that paracrine effect from a SAS response and an association with TH1 cell, you're going to start making CDK inhibitors, Because you got so much DNA damage, so much reactive oxygen, the cell cannot commit to division because division would mean proliferating a mutation. Then what happens, because you have CDK inhibitors, you get cell cycle arrest. And what happens with cell cycle arrest? You get a senescent phenotype. So that's how the proliferation response is stopped right at that level of DNA repair instantiation, moving to potentially cell cycle, that is mitosis and then cytokinesis, blocking that because you're blocking it with the CDK inhibitors. You're blocking the cell cycle uh, kinases, and because of that, you're preventing that otherwise mutant cell from dividing, and rather than that, it goes into senescence. Now, again, remember, that means that that cell now may have prematurely aged. And it's not going to just be one cell. This uh, the SAS response is going to be triggering multiple cell lineages with any potential uh, for excess DNA damage, either as the result of the cytokines producing um, ultimately the, the reactive oxygen because of the NADPH oxidase, or because of some other means that that potentially prodromal tumorigenic response is going to be shuttled down via the production of the CDK inhibitors. So that means you're getting a lot of aging transformation rather than cell proliferation. And this happens whenever you get DNA damage, and that's how it's controlled. It either commits to cell division, which could then Potentially increase the mutation. Remember, that's how it starts. That's how cancer starts. Or you can stop it, full stop, by blocking cell cycle by the, by giving uh, giving the expression of CDK inhibitors. And when, again, when that goes down, then you're in a senescent cell. Okay? So that's why aging cells are a good thing. You see. So let me explain in a little bit more detail here. Now. In any given cell, you could have a trigger for mitosis. So we call those kinds of triggers mitogens. Now, they could be xenobiotics, they could be carcinogens, or they can even be excessive production of icosinoids, excessive production of chemokines or cytokines or growth factors. Many, many, many organic molecules can be mitogens. Now what mitogen's normally do is they trigger two different kinases the p-ERK12 and the pAKT or the AKT okay which is part of the mTOR pathway remember now when those two kinases are triggered by the mitogen what happens is that the ERK12 turns on the cyclin D uh, pathway the AKT blocks otherwise cell cycle arresting P27. That's the KIP1 uh, subtype. So the PAKT that was just triggered by the mitogen blocks P27, which otherwise would have blocked downstream cyclins. So because you block P27, you don't then subsequently block downstream cyclins. They are turned on. And in fact, they're exacerbated by the increase in cyclin D. So all that then leads to the stimulation of cell cycle progress. Now, what that means basically is mitosis, you're going to have tubulin organization and all of that associated with spindle formation and function. Then, the pathway known as rho a rock which is actually necessary for the end of mitosis also known as you know it's when the cytoplasm divides that's called cytokinesis and that then will lead ultimately from the mitotic event to cell proliferation now as it turns out there is a very important steroid a 17 beta hydroxy steroid which will block that pathway It'll block the PERC12. It'll block the PAKT. It will also, that same compound, it's called 2 methoxyestradiol or 2 methoxy17 beta estradiol to be more specific. And I'll tell you where it comes from in a minute. It's endogenous steroid. So it inhibits those two kinases, but it also will block this tubulin organization. And finally, it probably also blocks the rho A rock at the end of the pathway when you get cytokinesis, cytokinesis. So where do you get this 2 methoxy estradiol? Well, it starts off with a steroid, either testosterone or estradiol. If you start with testosterone and the that particular steroid is committed through aromatase, the enzyme which will aromatize one of the rings. Remember, this, this, this structure is a... Cyclopentana phenanthrene ring structure coming from cholesterol. Remember, testosterone comes from cholesterol. That aromatization of the that ring, one of the ring structures, will give you estradiol. Estradiol can go through a seventeen beta, either hydroxylation or dehydrogenation. If it goes through this dehydrogenation, you make the estrone, which is the ketone. You have estradiol, which is the alcohol, and then estrone is the ketone. And that's basically how you make this structure. So this 17-beta-hydroxysteroid, it will, after aromatization of testosterone, and then this dehydrogenation basically will make this estrone, which is essentially a ketone in its final um, state. So that is an endogenous steroid that would block cell cycle. Now, why am I telling you this? How many times have I mentioned to you how lipid metabolism plays a very, very critical role in the immune response and in normal cell fate? Here we're talking about cell division versus what? I just told you about the ci- cyclins, right? Versus a senescent cellular fate. It was actually a, a typical way too that you could quickly move right into apoptosis. So senescence, programmed cell death or proliferation, the three common fates of a cell, especially as a cell is aging. And remember, you're getting telomerase uh, enzyme activity reduction, you're picking up more mutations because of reactive oxygen. Those cells, when they're most efficiently taken care of, will become senescent cells. And this is what happens as we age. So if that doesn't happen, you won't have as many senescent cells, which means you won't lose the function of wherever those senescent cells are, let's say in the muscle, but you will at the same time enhance the possibility of getting a carcinogenic oncogenic tumorogenic event. Okay. So corrupting either one of those pathways can lead you down yet another route to high morbidity and mortality in the aging human. That's the point I was making there. Now, cellular senescence entails widespread changes in chromatin organization, including this formation of what's known as heterochromatin, which is a repressive structure that limits transcription. And it limits because this heterochromatin can be formed at several loci. Some of those loci, of course, would likely encode pro-proliferative genes. So when you get cell senescence and you get the shutting down of global transcription because of the activities, for example, of sirtuins, which are deacetylates deacetylation of histones, lysine histones, uh, histones, on, histones uh, that have lysine, specific lysine residues that are otherwise acetylated, that would be euchromatin, where you have much more active transcription. But as you age, you get a higher level of certain sirtuins in the nucleus, which will collapse the euchromatin to heterochromatin, therefore causing a disruption of RNA polymerase-mediated transcription of what would otherwise be pro-proliferative genes. So that means per- perturbations to an epigenome, which has specific signatures at specific loci, can elicit this senescent response. Other inducers, for example, suboptimal levels of CMIC or P300 histone acetyltransferase activity, seem to act by perturbing chromatin organization what we've been calling retailering rather than remodeling, remember? And that could induce that tumor suppressive protein, P16inc4A. ink 4 right? So that protein actually gets induced upon heterochromatin structural conformation. But most of the other proteins that would be first, of course, transcribed and translated, that would be involved in cell cycle, the normal housekeeping proteins, those are, because they are stochastically represented throughout the genome, and you get this kind of pseudo-random collapse of the chromatin, you, you remove the efficiency of the pro-proliferative gene expression at the same time increasing cell cycle suppression by producing proteins like P16 and 4A. Now under some circumstances, epigenomic perturbations can elicit, and we've just went through this, the DNA damage res- repair response. And that can even happen. The epigenomic perturbations can do this even when there is no DNA damage. For example, Histone deacetylase inhibitors activate the DDR protein, ATM. So when histone deacetylase activity as conducted by sirtuins would make heterochromatin and thus decrease the proliferative response. When you get a deacetylase inhibitor, you can get DNA damage repair response kicked in without physical DNA damage. And that protein ATM, which is ataxia, telangiectasia mutated, that protein is turned on. And that induces, of course, as I mentioned several times through lectures in the last year, the DNA damage repair response. And that can happen directly without DNA damage. So you see how this works. It's a constant interaction between a suite of genes which are held in check from expression only during certain phases of cell cycle, thus controlling the potentiation of cell division. At the same time, you have a host of cells that are always poised to be induced if heterochromatin is achieved because of deacetylation, which is an epigenetic phenomenon. And then that would, of course, lead to a senescent response and also sometimes to program cell death. And what that will do is it'll knock out the function of that cell or that entire tissue, however many cells are lost that way, and isn't that what we get with aging? Yes, right? You get less function because you start to get cellular senescence, which is an aged cell, can't divide anymore. For the most part, it can be re-triggered as we talked about, but for the most part, it's finished dividing. So that means that whatever that tissue is that those cells support a function for, it starts to lose its abilities as that function now starts to senesce itself. And this is what happens in aging, aging in the brain, aging in the muscle, aging in the heart, aging in the kidney, aging in the liver, aging in the pancreas, you understand. But all of that can prevent the errant cell proliferation, which is always held in check. So if you lose a strong senescent response as you're aging, you pick up more mutations, and you go right into a mutagenic program. That's why if you try to hit one side or the other of those pathways, you can push via feedback inhibition at the multiple layers of these transcription factors and these cell cycle inhibitors, as well as the global responses like DNA damage repair and the production of reactive oxygen and the synthesis and turnover of pro-inflammatory cytokines you are in a constant equipoise um, of either having a senescent cell or either one that's going to die, which is basically also non-functional, or proliferate, which will give you cancer. This is what happens is all those cells start to age. So think about the ABL protein. The ABL protein gets phosphorylated and therefore activated in response to stimulation with a mitogenic factor, okay? And that could be a common one, for example, would be PDGF, okay? That's a common mitogenic protein. Another one is ET1, okay? So let me tell you a little bit about those two mitogens. So a pre-protein that will be proteolytically processed to this endothelial 1, becomes now a secreted peptide that belongs to a, kind of a superfamily of proteins called the endothelian seraphotoxin family of proteins. Now, this particular peptide, uh, ET1, is a potent vasoconstrictor, and its cognate receptors are now being used as therapeutic targets in the treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension. Now, we all know that's another common morbidity in aging humans, particularly in males. So, an aberrant expression of that ET1 may promote tumorigenesis, and alternative splicing results in multiple transcript variants. Okay. Now, what about PDGF? that's a member of the family comprised of both platelet-derived growth factor. That's why it's called that. And then another protein I know many of you have heard of, the vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF. So the, here, the encoded pre-protein is proteolytically processed to generate platelet-derived growth factor subunit B. Okay, That protein, that peptide, can homodimerize or alternatively, it can heterodimerize with a related PDGF subunit A. So you have homodimers, heterodimers. These proteins will bind and activate, of course, the PDGF receptor, tyrosine kinase. Now, what does that do? That plays a role in a very wide range of developmental processes. So mutations in that gene, PDGF, are going to be associated with various cancers, including meningioma. Reciprocal translocations, indeed, between chromosomes 22 and 17, in sites where this particular gene, and that is for collagen type 1 alpha 1, are located are associated with a dermatofibrosarcoma protuberins, which is actually a rare skin tumor. And alternative splicing results there again in this PDGF system with multiple transcript variants. So you get the myogenic factors, EG1, PDGF. They're, they now, I just mentioned to you, now I'm giving you a higher magnification of what's going on, because now I told you about the mitogenic factors. They will trigger the AKT and the ERK-2, ERK-1-2, I should say, and those are going to cause cell proliferation. Likewise, those mitogenic factors are going to cause that translocation of the ABL protein, the ABL, and that's going to result in Various kinds of protein dynamics associated with actin filaments. And that will also activate ERK1-2. So you have multiple ways of getting cell proliferation. Okay. Now, all of that comes a paper published in the American Journal of Physiology and Cell Physiology uh, back in, um, well, way back in 2012. So let me go on. You have an aurora kinase. And that is a cell cycle regulated kinase that appears to be involved in microtubule formation and stabilization. And this is going to be at the spindle pole level of chromosome segregation. And that encoded protein, the aurora kinase, is found at the centrosome in interphase cells, this is all mitosis here, and the spindle poles during the later stages of mitosis, closer to cytokinesis. That same gene, the aurora kinase, can also play a role in tumor development and progression, as you might guess. Now, there's a protein that we talked about before called forkhead box O or FOXO. Now, those FOX proteins are transcription factors. And of course, they're going to regulate several biological processes because they're involved in transcription of multiple families of genes. And of course, that means downstream, they're going to affect development, metabolism. And even when you're talking about mesenchymal, uh, epithelial mesenchymal transitions, they're going to maintain stem cell maintenance and longevity, these transcription factors, these FOX transcription factors. They've also been recognized for a long time as tumor suppressors through their ability to regulate genes essential for cell proliferation. Now, not only do they control cell proliferation, as you might guess, they also control programmed cell death, senescence, and then physiological paradigms like angiogenesis, cell migration, and if it's a cancer system, metastasis. So mechanistically, these transcription factors called FOXOs, working now as proteins, of course, serve as the key connection points to allow diverse, proliferative, nutrient and stress response signals to converge and then ultimately synthesize and integrate with distinct gene networks to control cell fate. What fate? Senescence. Program cell death, or proliferation. And they do it by, by altering metabolism. So all of this means that if there's a dysregulation of FOXO expression, you're going to get then an alteration of function. And that function then, if it's disabled or disrupted, depending on what cell type it is, what tissue lineage it is, and the age of the cells and everything else that we've talked about, It can promote genetic disorders, metabolic diseases, and it can also alter the aging phenotype in association with the rejuvenating carcinogenesis. So you have multiple forms of these foxes. You have fox C1, F1, C2, and F2. So fox F2 blocks the dimerization of FOXC1C2, but when FOXC1C2 does dimerize, it turns on AKT. AKT blocks FOXO1, FOXO3, and FOXO4. When that happens, this FOXO3 can't block FOXM1. So because of that, you get metastasis, proliferation, angiogenesis, and invasion. Yet another FOX protein, FOX-Q1, will directly activate that. And this aurora kinase is functioning at the level of blocking FOX-O1, which can then interact with FOX-O3 and through that as an intermediate FOX-O4, which means it would be blocking the FOX-M1 if it is not otherwise being inhibited. If it's being inhibited,